Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton, and today we are interviewing Michael Shermer. Michael Shermer is the author of the book we just did on the weekend called Skeptic, which is all about looking at the world through a rational eye, you know, questioning everything you hear and always looking for the truth, not looking for persuasion and people's claims and new ideas. Always, you know, that scientific, rational um, framework around everything. So Michael Shermer is the founder of the Skeptic Society, which is over 50,000 members today. He's the editor-in-chief of Skeptic Magazine. He's written books, he's written articles, he's uh, produced TV shows, uh, he's done everything pretty much. He's the man when it comes to skepticism. And he's got a brand new book, which we dive into, called Heavens on Earth. He was looking at heaven, utopia, all these wonderful things through a rational eye. Now, Adam Jones features on this interview, as always. I think he has gone to look at some more 9-11 conspiracy videos because Michael Sherman debunked and completely changed his worldview. So who knows where Jones Man is going to land on the 9-11 conspiracy. Anyway, here is Michael Shermer. So skeptic is just a scientific way of looking at the world. Skepticism is, that is, uh, that is we, we accept claims only when there's adequate evidence for them. And we always begin with the null hypothesis. That is, your claim is not true until you prove otherwise. Uh-huh. And, of course, skeptics believe all sorts of things. The Big Bang Theory of the creation of the universe, the theory of evolution, the germ theory of disease, uh, plate tectonics, you know, and so on. And the reason for that is because there's lots of evidence for it. Um, and, you know, climate change would be another one, uh, you know, anthropogenic uh, global warming. It's real. It's true because there's overwhelming evidence for it. Otherwise, I'd be skeptical, which I was in the 90s and early 2000s because I didn't think the evidence was all that overwhelming. Now it's it's overwhelming. So when we talk about the consensus in science, like in that example, uh, we don't mean a democracy like, you know, let's everybody vote and see how you feel about climate change. No, it's that uh, the, the vast majority of scientific papers point in that direction. So that gives us confidence that, uh, well, it'd be too much to say that it's true with a capital T because in science we're mostly uh, falsifying or debunking not true ideas. And the, left, the, last, the, the ones left standing are the ones that, you know, we have some confidence are true. So that's, that's the skeptic position. Um, and if you say Bigfoot is real, I say, okay, show me the body yeah. and yeah. I'll believe <laughs> Uh, you know, aliens have visited Earth. Super interesting. Uh, show me the spacecraft. Show me the alien bodies, and I will believe. Uh, but in science, you know, things like blurry photographs and grainy videos and stories about things that go bump in the night, that's not adequate evidence. So that's where you, you, skepticism comes in. Yeah. And so just on that, um, how do you know what sources you can or can't trust? And how do you separate, I guess, the, the facts or the arguments from the persuasion and the, the presentation? Yeah, so um, this this is a super important question now, particularly with you know fake news and alternative yeah. facts and you know, all the stuff we're going through. Um, well, you have in an open society, you have fact checkers and fact checkers of the fact checkers. So, um, although it's somewhat discouraging since the last election, all the claims that are made that are now called fake news or alternative facts, there have um, arisen in the pop in pop culture these fact checking sites like Politifact, mm-hmm. for example. Snopes, Snopes has been around for a long time. We, we love Snopes. 
Um, they do a lot. We do a lot. What Snopes does, although ours is more narrowly focused in scientific claims. But, you know, like with PolitiFact, for example, these are the ones that rate things as true, possibly true, not sure, po- probably false, false, and pants on fire. And But they've become kind of a clickbait to go, go-to site for uh, 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 fact-checking politician speeches in real time. Mm-hmm. And so that this is a good anecdote to this, that, you know, at some point politicians writing speeches are going to have to go, okay, well, if I just make this claim and throw it out there, somebody's going to nail me on it. So I better at least fact-check it myself or have my people fact-check it. Yeah. You know, so in, in terms of science, uh, everybody that works in the business kind of knows there's, there's sort of a hierarchy of journals. Some are better than others. You know, it has to do with uh, with their ratings about which it's kind of similar to the Google page rank system. That is the more people that cite articles in a particular journal, the higher up the scale or hierarchy that journal goes in terms of its prestige. So of course more um, scientists want to publish there. So it's harder to get in and the standards go even higher and it just keeps going that way. So you have like Nate science and nature or Journal of the American Medical Association or the British Journal of Medicine and, and Lancet and so on. And these these kind of uh, – there's nobody on top saying this is who you should read. <laughs> it happens just bottom up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the same way that things go viral on the internet, no one determines that. It just happens mm-hmm. uh, based on what people are interested in and, and who they trust. So I, I'm reasonably confident that the system is working. Um, you know, there's always been fake news and alternative facts. We just didn't call it that. You know, back when I was in college, you know, and Nixon Watergate thing was unfolding, uh, you know, I was taking a political science class at, at the time of Watergate. You know, so at, our textbook was the, you know, the New York Times every day. What was that? Uh, uh, what was Watergate? Do you know what that one was? Yeah, give us a quick. Uh, I think younger Aussies probably don't know a whole lot about it. Watergate is is where uh, during the nineteen seventy two election run up to that, uh, President Nixon um, had um, had his thugs break into the Democratic um, a Democratic office that was at this hotel called Watergate. Uh-huh. And now that's become, you know, the, the gate has become everything, you know, mm-hmm. you throw gate on the end of it. And, and basically that's a, a meme of, you know, when there's like overreach or, you know, illegal activity or something that then, then explodes in, in, in the media as, as a huge event. This was just a minor break in by a couple of, uh, you know, FBI thugs, uh, you know, G-men just you know, looking for files. And, uh, and and this is the best example I can think of of why how conspiracies actually work. Mm-hmm. You know, conspir- there are conspiracies. Watergate was a conspiracy. You know, and, you know Nixon didn't ask anybody's permission. He just had his guys go in there and, and break into this hotel room and try to steal some files of of his opponent. And uh, but but here, it, it, you know, the most powerful president in the, the most powerful political leader in the world, in the most powerful country in the world couldn't even break into a hotel room (laughs) (laughs) without getting caught you know or or you know more colorfully you know president clinton couldn't even get a blowjob in the white house (laughs) you know so the idea that you know there's this cabal of a handful of people running the world and 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 running the economy and and declaring wars and and orchestrating these vast, mm-hmm. you know, c- complex systems is just ludicrous because what we know happens is typically small scale and most of the people involved are inept. Mm. 
And one of the biggest conspiracies, and, and we'll probably go through your book, Skeptic, before we get into your new book. But I know Adam Ashen here, he got me onto this conspiracy. <laughs> how, uh, since you told me. How the US, you know, were responsible for 9-11. So that's, I guess, in the, along the lines of what you're talking about now. Can you help debunk yes. that theory a little bit yeah, for Yeah, that's a good, that's a good example. I mean, the, claim, <laughs> the claim is that um, 9-11 was not orchestrated by al-Qaeda. Uh, but that the Bush administration did it. Well, there's there's different versions depending on who you talk to. Either the Bush administration orchestrated the thing, or they knew it was happening, you know, going to happen, and they let it happen in order to galvanize the American people so that we could go to war in the Middle East in the interests of oil and so forth. Okay. Mm. So uh, the the first one is super easy to debunk because we know the planes hit the buildings. You can see it, uh, and so the idea that that in addition to the planes hitting the buildings, there were also operatives who snuck into the World Trade Center buildings, two of the most secure buildings in the world with, you know, guards all over the place. You have to have, you know, password cards, key cards to get in and so on. Somehow they got in there, you know, broke through all the drywall, planted these explosive devices on the, you know, the vertical support structures and, and on and on. This would take, you know, months to do. You know, we know this from people that, intentionally demolish buildings that they're going to uh, tear down and it takes them months to prepare it. And, uh, you know, so somehow they were able to do this without anybody noticing. And then they planted the bombs at the exact floor at the right exact angle that the planes hit, uh, yeah. you know, impossible. <laughs> mm. and, and that's just the start. Not, not to mention, you know, this would take, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of people involved and, and not one person has written a book, gone on a, a podcast or talk show to say, you're not going to believe it. Or mm. their their boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife said, boy, yeah. I was sleeping with this guy and he told me this incredible story, you know, <laughs> that he broke in, that Bush himself ordered it, you know, nothing, nothing like that. Now, the idea that the Bush administration allowed it to happen, well, okay, again, this is the competency problem, you know, somehow they knew all this stuff, but we know uh, all, all the intel memos that came in like in August before the month before September 11th. There was a famous one that Condoleezza Rice got, Secretary of State, uh, on August 9th saying, you know, Al-Qaeda to strike United States on U.S. soil. Wow, that sounds pretty damning. Mm -hmm. Until you read it in the context that th these organizations receive hundreds, thousands of pieces of intel every day. Yeah. And you know, after the fact, you can go back and, oh, look, they should have known because look at that one right there. Well, what it, what about all the other ones? You know, so this is the curse of knowledge. We already know what happened. So with the hindsight bias, we can look back and, and say they should have done this. Yeah, but if you didn't know all the things that happened, how would you know that particular one is the key one? So this is how we know 9-11, not to mention al-Qaeda you know, said they did it, boasted yeah. about it. Yeah. They would do, try to do it again. They have tried to do it again many times. They did do it again on, you know, in, in London and, and Madrid and, and so on. So mm. that's, that's pretty much the, the end of the 9-11 truthers. What are some other crazy conspiracies or what are your favorite ones to take down? Well, that, that, that one's kind of the craziest at the moment, although the, the mother of all of them seems to be JFK. Mm. Uh, I'm not 100% sure why, but you know, he was good-looking, handsome, articulate, powerful. And I think there's something of a um, cognitive dissonance between the size of the event and the cause of the event. We want them to be balanced. Like the Holocaust was orchestrated and committed by the Nazis. So you have the worst atrocity in human history committed by the worst political regime in human history. There's a kind of a match there. Mm -hmm. If you say like back to 9-11, you know, 9-11 is this horrific event committed by 19 guys with box cutters. I mean, what? 
I mean, it just it seems like you need something big to match that big event. And, you know, JFK was assassinated by who? Lee Harvey Oswald. Who's that? He's just this loser, this nobody, this wingnut. And uh, so you got to add layers in. So he's down here. JFK's up here. So no, no, it was the FBI and the CIA and the KGB and the mafia. <laughs> and, the, and, you know, you sort of add all those. Like Princess Diana, you know, cause of death, speeding, drunk driving, no seatbelt. You know, th this is the most common form of traffic deaths in the world, and uh, but princesses don't die like the, the hoi polloi die, right? So again, you had to, you know, the royal family and and the you know Arab family and this, you know, M M M MI five and so on, all were involved. You know, so I think there's something about that, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, then there's another thing like the resurrection of the of the Messiah. It's like. That, you know, the great leaders and kings and, and, and alpha males, whatever, they don't really die. They just go somewhere else. Uh, I, I got just another article recently of, you know, Hitler was didn't kill himself in the bunker. You know, he, he escaped and he moved to Australia or sorry, no, to <laughs> Yeah, no, he's not in Australia. <laughs> Good. Good to know. <laughs> you know, and there's just, you know, Elvis is still alive somewhere living with Princess Diana and their lover. You know, there's just crazy stories, yeah. you know, that, although we commonly we, we routinely accept the deaths of common people. Like, of course, he died. of He was drunk driving, of course. <laughs> but, you know, with somebody special, it doesn't you know, there's a cognitive disconnect there, a cognitive dissonance that we have to correct. Yeah. Another one in the book, and this is something I kind of fell for, is on this documentary called What the Bleak Do You Know? When I first saw it, I thought I was blown away. But it takes all these things from quantum physics, like the double slit experiment and the uncertainty principle and all this, and then applies it to the, the macro kind of level. And then this whole new age movement has come with this. So what yeah. what do you say to debunk these kind of how the quantum level applies to everyday life? Well, the general idea is that, you know, quantum physics is spooky and weird and, Consciousness is spooky and weird, so they must be connected. <laughs> well, not necessarily. Uh, you know, there's lots of spooky and weird things. It doesn't mean they're causally connected. What people are going for there is uh, the fact that we don't have ex a good explanation for consciousness. Uh, we don't have a good explanation for, say, altered states of consciousness because we don't have a cogent theory of consciousness. You know, not not how neurons work and all that. We understand that, but but, but how it is that you and I can do what we're doing now, just being looking looking out at the world through our eyes, the lights are on upstairs, we're fully aware and we're experiencing something. That's hard to explain. That's why it's called the hard problem. And, uh, you know, there's no unified theory of, you know, quantum physics and, and general relativity. And, you know, there is no one, you know, single big theory of everything in physics. So the, the fact that there's this kind of open-ended questions uh, leads people to kind of open, opens the door for people to dive in with their with their theories, which is fine. You know, Karl Popper famously called this conjecture and reputation. That is, what scientists do is they conjecture stuff. They just throw a lot of hypotheses out there and see what sticks. And what's left standing, after the, most of them have been debunked, is, well, I wouldn't say, again, I wouldn't say true, but not false yet. So, you know, those are the ones we can be reasonably confident in. So we don't really have that yet for yeah. consciousness. If you look at, if you read any of the great books on consciousness, uh, you'll see, you know, there's like half a dozen popular theories about it, and uh, and and no one agrees which is the right one. So that that kind of opens the door for everybody and their brother to jump in. Yeah. The as same a, thing with physics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as a segue into the heavens and earth now, so what? Why do people believe some of those things? 
without a rational mind or what makes us you know believe things that might have no kind of rational base or scientific truth to it um well because we're not we're not natural born scientists you know we our brains think anecdotally you know we evolved on the savannas of africa you know we're not used to you know contemplating things that are running faster than a cheetah like the speed of light which is way faster than a cheetah or uh you know something larger than let's say a mountain range you know like a galaxy star galaxies you know expanding universe you know these these kinds of things that we talk about in science now are just so vastly beyond what our intuitions can grasp you know s- string theory every documentary you've ever seen on string theory shows a violin you know, it's like it's nothing to do with violin <laughs> <laughs> They're going for some kind of metaphor and yeah. <laughs> analogy that helps us hook at something in our brain. It's kind of like this, not really, but kind of, you know. So I think, um, you know, we do the best we can. We, we, we have reason as a tool uh, that we've honed over the last couple centuries through science and philosophy and logic and so on. But, uh, but that takes some training, some practice, some, you know, kind of effort to overcome the anecdote. So, uh, you know, in the classic uh, case of what we've been debunking recently of autism and uh, vaccinations. You know, the anti-vaxxers say, well, look, you know, this this mom had her kid vaccinated and three weeks later he was diagnosed with autism. You know, there must be a connection. Okay, maybe, but, you know, this has now since been debunked. But the anecdotally, you know, this happened and that happened. In time, they're close. And so our brains are naturally evolved to find a connection between causally, temporarily related possible cause, causal events. And sometimes that's true. They are causally connected, but sometimes not. The only way to find out is to employ science, but that doesn't come naturally. Mm-hmm. What comes naturally is just, I saw this, and then that happened, and so they, they must be connected. And so that's that's where we get into trouble, I think. Nice. And so I guess sort of from the, the, the new book that you've got that – all these, all different religions seem to have some kind of something that happens after life, whether it's whether it's heaven or a whole lot of virgins, or whether it's reincarnation or something happens. We don't just die and that's it. Um, and so you went to check it, check it out, yeah. Yeah, that's that's the new book. Heavens on Earth is um, well, it's a, as I say, you're the scientific search for the afterlife, immortality, and utopia. Um, so yeah, I start off by saying first, you can't even conceive of what it's like to be dead because to conceive of anything, you have to be alive. So we have something of a paradox. You know, imagine being dead. You can't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to imagine anything, you have to be sentient and conscious. So uh, so right right off the bat, that presents something of a problem. We can't imagine being dead. So the only thing we can imagine is continuing on somehow. But we see people die, so we naturally think, well, there must be something else that continues. Yeah. And what is that something else? Well, we're also natural-born dualists. That is, um, you can this here. I, I, I write about Paul Bloom's research at Yale with little kids. These are preschoolers, and they give them a little puppet show. You know, here's a little mouse, and an alligator munches the mouse and kills him. Okay, where's the mouse? Oh, the mouse is he's off at this other place, and he misses his mommy, and he's lonely, and he's thirsty. You know, these little kids, you know, they haven't been enculturated into dualism and Descartes, whatever. I mean, they're just thinking, well, he must be somewhere else now. Well, mm-hmm. who's the he? You know, well, it's not the body because the body's right there. So there must be something else. So we have this kind of idea that there's body and soul, brain and mind, um, and corporeal and incorporeal, material and immaterial. And and that just seems to be wired into our brains. And, and so we imagine, I can't imagine being dead. So there must be something, my soul, that continues on. So that is what most people believe. 
uh, we materialist scientists are in the minority for sure uh, that think, well, this is all there is. Uh, and, and after your, your, your body dies, you, you just cease to exist, much like general anesthesia. You know, it's just 10, 9, 8, boom, boom, lights out, and you don't wake up. Uh, th that's the only thing I can think of that it could be like. Now, if it turned out that there is some other place, <laughs> and I wake up, and there's you know my friends Carl Sagan and Stephen Jay Gould and my parents and you know people I knew that are gone already. You know, okay, uh, great. I think hopefully <laughs> <laughs> it's a good place. Yeah. Um, you know I, I'm not against any of this. It just there's just no evidence for it. So back to your first question with the skeptic, the, the default position is just it's probably not true, mm. but I'm open to evidence for it. Yeah. So why do why do we invent these stories about where we go to or so-called invent it and and do, do does science know for sure, or is there you know a, a bit of uncertainty there as well at the end, and some room? For well, we, we don't know for sure. First of all, we don't know for sure we go anywhere, but but we can't also say that we know you don't go anywhere. You know, we so I don't know if there's an afterlife or not, and I'm I'm pretty confident there probably isn't. But if there is, again, I'll, I'll be open to it. But the point of my book, particularly I get to the last chapter saying, well, okay, so all these theories don't hold water, including the scientific ones. You're going to upload your mind and live in a, a cloud somewhere, all this bunch of nonsense. Uh, <laughs> what's the point of it? You know, what's the point of it? Well, you're missing the point if you're focused on the afterlife because you don't live in the afterlife. We live in this life. You know, if you're too focused on the hereafter, you're going to miss the here and now because the here and now is where we're at. This is it today, right now. You know, make the most of it. You know, live a good life. Be, you know, be kind to other people. Have, you know, meaningful relationships, mm -hmm. meaningful work. You know, try to make the world just a little bit better place. And, you know, I mean, what most people want, like Woody Allen, they don't want to live on in their work. They want to live on in their apartment. Yeah. <laughs> I get that. I totally get it. I don't want to die. I love, you know, here I, I live in California. It's beautiful. It's fun. Uh, you know, I, I love every day. I don't want it to end. But, uh, you know, but, so, so, but, but, but don't focus on, you know what's coming focus on just today that's, that's it mm, that's interesting and it's a and you sort of said that it's not just uh religion that has these ideas of you know heaven or reincarnation or, or whatever it may be uh and it's not just the the hope of there's something more but it's also science some scientists are trying to you know extend life so that we never die or as you say there is the other ideas of uploading your mind to the cloud so it's not just religion is it no, no, no. There's uh, quite a movement now that uh, this was the spark of the book initially was, you know, who are these people that want to live forever? I mean, they're not theists, obviously. Most of them are atheists. I call this afterlife for atheists. Mm. Um, you know, they want, they want to keep going. So you have the radical life extensionists that, you know, through diet and exercise and supplements and this and that, body part replacements and genetic engineering and so on, just keep going. Okay, well, there's lots and lots of problems with that. We're not even remotely close to anybody living beyond the upper ceiling of about 120 years. This notion that we live twice as long as people did centuries ago is nonsense. People centuries ago lived 80, 90, 100 years old, just not very many of them. <laughs> now lots and lots of us are making it closer and closer to the upper ceiling because of vaccinations and public health and modern medicine and all that great stuff. You know, and it's good, but... But no one's living beyond that upper ceiling. So what they what they want to do is somehow break through that. And and, and there's you know, dozens of things that would have to happen between now and then. And, and we've solved none of them. <laughs> you know, so the stuff that Aubrey de Grey 
guy, Aubrey de Grey, you know, he's on record saying the first person to live a thousand years is alive today. Okay. Well, I like Aubrey because he likes beer. And, <laughs> and apparently beer is in the formula somewhere. So, okay, I'm good with that. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think that's really going to do it. <laughs> but, but, but again, back to my previous point, beer does make today a little bit better. It's nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Probably doesn't make tomorrow so good if you go too hard. Yeah, if you go, tomorrow morning won't be so good. Maybe tomorrow afternoon. But but the idea that somehow I'm doing this so I can live in in a century from now, I'll still be alive. Don't don't worry about a century from now. You know, worry about tomorrow. And you know, when they say, "Shermer, don't you want to live to be 500 years old?" I say, "Listen, just get me to 80 without cancer. Get me Mm. to 90 without Alzheimer's. Get me to 100 without you know being in a bed on a morphine drip. You know, I just." A quality of life year after year, and if it keeps going, fine, that's great. But you know, but but then there's another problem uh, with the others, like the mind uploading. Um, I don't think it would be you that would continue on, because when when they talk about making a copy of your so-called connectome, which is the analog to your genome, your connectome is all your memories in the connections between your neurons. That's where memories are stored. If we copy that and put it in a computer or in the cloud. Um, the idea is we turn it on and you wake up in, in there. I don't think you'd wake up anywhere. Mm. I think it would just be a copy of you any more than a twin looks at its sibling and says, well, there I am. Mm. No, no, I'm still here. Because <laughs> if we did this while you were still alive, scanned your brain through a sophisticated fMRI brain scanner and then uploaded it to the cloud and turned it on, and you're still standing there next to the machine going, well, duh, I'm not up there. I'm right here. Dude, here. <laughs> <laughs> so... You know, it's not it's not you. You know, in, the, in that movie Transcendence with Johnny Depp, he plays this computer scientist who gets assassinated with some polonium radiation poisoning. He's got like a week to live or something like that. Anyway, so he spends the time uploading his mind in the computer and turns it on. He's in there, you know, looking out through the little camera hole. Yeah. No, <laughs> no, no. That's not what's going to happen. Oh. And, and this is – so I actually have a whole chapter on the, the nature of the soul and the self and who you are, the problem of identity. Who are you? Because we know that uh, your body is completely replaced, almost completely replaced every seven to ten years. All the cells are recycled. You know, you have new molecules and atoms. It's, you're not the same person you were a decade ago. But you still feel like you. So what is that? So it's not the material self. It's the pattern of information that represents you. So how somehow that would have to be copied and continued with not only that, but also your point of view self, the POV self, the you looking out through your eyes moment to moment to moment. Now, there is a break in consciousness every night when you go to sleep, although there's some dreams, so it continues a little bit. But the idea that you could transfer the point of view self into the computer is what I doubt. Damn, I've been watching a lot of Black Mirror lately and I was hoping I'd be able to, you know, yeah. upload, <laughs> upload myself a few yes, hundred I, times. I got to binge watch that series. People keep telling me about it. I haven't watched it yet. Oh, yeah, it's bloody good. So... I guess the message of your book to the end is, you know, you're not going to be able to upload yourself. You're not going to go somewhere when you die, most likely. So you're going to enjoy today, whatever you're doing, and enjoy the totally. rest of your life. I think it's a good outcome and a much more, yeah. you know, you can take control, take a bit of responsibility, and yeah. And it's not just pleasure seeking. It's not like let's just, you know, hook up to the morphine drip or, or go into virtual reality and, or watch porn all day or something. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> it's like, of course, here we are, guys, talking about this. <laughs> uh, you know, but that isn't where the action is. Really, what we know from the literature and uh, psychologists who study 
well-being and happiness and, and purposefulness and so on. It isn't just trying to do pleasurable things every day, although that's certainly part of life, but more meaningful or, or more long-term, um, you know, in terms of like uh, helping other people, working for charities, you know, being, you know, you know, doing, raising children, you know, being a caretaker to your parents, you know, these, these things aren't fun in the same way, like going out to dinner with your friends are, or, you know, playing a sport for an hour, you know, that's fun. Uh, you know, caretaking for a parent is not fun, uh, but it's meaningful. It gives you it gives you more purpose. So a purpose driven life is is more important than a, than a pleasure driven life. Although it's okay to have pleasure too. Just kind of you got to mix it up. So we know kind of. So I kind of outline what we know from the research on this, and uh, it's a balance. You know, it's okay to, to to have pleasurable things every day, but also you know some long term things like you know next year I want to do this or develop a new career. Raise children, get married, take care of parents, whatever. Those things aren't fun in the same pleasurable way, but they're meaningful. Awesome, love I mean, it. I think that's a phenomenal yeah. outcome. As yeah. we are get toward the end now, what are your some of the, some of your favorite books or books that have been really influential on on your career? Uh, well, for me, you know, early on, I, I read a lot of Stephen Jay Gould and Carl Sagan and Richard Dawkins, um, and. Just in terms of their writing about science in a way that anybody could understand, but not dumbing down. Mm-hmm. You know, like Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, you know, this was just voted in the UK as the most important science book of the 20th century. Wow. Oh, wow. But it's not the popular version of the technical theory. It's the only version uh, that he has of that. And, and anyone can read it. Same thing with Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel. You know, won the Pulitzer Prize. This is not the popular version of his technical papers he published somewhere. No, it's the only version there is. So I admire that. I try to do that with my books. I think Steven Pinker is, is really successful at that. Banner Angels of Our Nature, I, I felt, was the most important social science book ever written. He's got a new one coming out, Enlightenment Now, that I, I finished and reviewed for, for science. I think it's great. Um, you know, Dawkins, of course, Dan Dennett's pretty good at this. Sam Harris, the clear writer hitch, of course, on political Christopher Hitchens on political, social, uh, things less than science, but still I like his writing style. So those, I think those, those, those books and those authors, uh, I get a lot from. Nice. There's a few to add to the list there for sure. Um, and I guess as we, as we wrap it up as well, where can people find you and what projects are coming up next? Uh, well, skeptic.com is is our um, you know the webpage for Skeptic Magazine, which anyone can subscribe to, even in uh, even in Australia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, well, we have a strong digital presence now. You know, it, you can get Skeptic on uh, on any of the digital platforms, and uh, so. But michaelshermer.com, of course, Amazon carries all my books. And uh, fine bookstores everywhere carry my you know, the physical book. I <laughs> yeah. still like the physical book. I mean, yeah, same. Awesome. Uh, I, you know, I read the newspaper every morning, a physical newspaper. I, I love just sitting outside with a book. You know, and, uh, nothing wrong with e-books, and I listen to audio books when I'm cycling or driving around uh, Southern California. You know, but there's still nothing better than a physical book. So I'm glad I try to support uh, brick-and-mortar bookstores when I can, because you know I, I don't want the Amazon Leviathan to take over the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I have anything against them being big or whatever. It's just that you know I like bookstores, and, and, and there's still, and I think there will always be a place for that. We hope you enjoyed that interview. We just wanted to remind you we've read some bloody good books this season so far and you can win them all yep so we've got a a prize so there's three ways you can enter this and it is absolute bonanza yeah it is a bonanza you know (laughs) seven habits of highly effective people if you can grow rich start with why 
to name just a few of the 48 books that you can win. So you can firstly uh, fill out the survey at whatyouwillearn.com slash survey. Very short, two minutes. Yep, and you can see that in the show notes of all our episodes. The, the second one is leave a review for us. Yep, we'll find that. And the third way is to just buy a book. Yep. Have a read, send us a picture of the book or the receipt or something at uh, podcast at whatyouwillearn.com. And yeah, that's it. you can enter three times, three yep, chances three to times. win. Each time, probably maximum three minutes time investment. Yep. And you could land 50 fucking good books which you can use yourself or give us gifts yeah good shit